Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. I am Trace, and this is a rebroadcast of our episode about blood. Today we're going to talk about what is blood and what does it do? We're going to talk about blood diseases, treatments, and what blood types there are, why these blood types are important. We're going to talk about synthetic blood, which is coming. It'll be here soon. We're going to get all of this in the next 45 minutes or so, and we're going to take a deep dive into blood. Oh, actually, that sounds like something out of a horror movie. What I meant is we're going to look at the science of blood. We're not literally going to dive into... Okay, hang on. There is science flowing through your veins right now, and we're going to get all... That doesn't actually work either. That sounds worse. Okay, blood. Let's kick into it. What is blood? What is blood? Blood is a fluid. It circulates throughout your body, through your veins and your arteries. You probably know all that. You probably have kind of always known that. According to the American Red Cross, the average adult has about 10 pints of blood. Men usually have a bit more. They're usually a little larger as well. Men uh, have about 12 pints. Women have about 9 pints. Of course, these are all averages. And that amount is going to go up and down based on our weight. So with all of this blood circulating through us in every part of our body, feeding ourselves with oxygen and nutrients, we should probably know what it is, right? Blood is part liquid, part solid. It's made up of four main parts, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and plasma. Red blood cells and plasma are the majority of what is in our blood, and white blood cells and platelets, that's like less than 1%. Red blood cells are the big most famous part of our blood, right? When you think of blood, you think of redness. That comes from these cells. It's called an ethrocyte, which makes up about 45% of our blood, and they're super important because they deliver oxygen from the lungs out to the rest of the body, all the way to every cell. Then they return to the lungs with carbon dioxide so that we can exhale it. It's doing this constantly, and based on this process, we can live. The protein inside of our red blood cells that actually carries that oxygen, though, is called hemoglobin. It's a great word. It's super fun. Go ahead, say it aloud. I don't care if you're on the bus. Say hemoglobin. It's fun, right? Each red blood cell contains about 280 million hemoglobin molecules. But if you get even deeper into those, what those molecules are, they contain iron atoms. It's actually those iron atoms that the oxygen and carbon dioxide will stick to. There are four iron atoms for each hemoglobin, meaning hemoglobin combined four oxygen atoms at a time. So once oxygen has gone into the hemoglobin protein and it's on its way from the lungs, that is oxygenated blood, that is called oxyhemoglobin or HbO2. And that's not all. Red blood cells are responsible for disposing that carbon dioxide, as we said. Super important stuff. Another one that's named after a color or a shade, I guess, is the white blood cell, which like red blood cells have a fancy name, a leukocyte. Even though they don't make up as much of your blood, they're a very small percentage, they're still very important. The leukocytes help protect us from disease. You probably know this as well. White blood cells are part of our immune response. When your body detects an invader like a bacteria, it sends white blood cells after them, and they want to destroy it before it makes you sick. There isn't just one kind of white blood cell, though. It's not just one thing. It'd be super boring, right? <laughs> it has to be complicated. Different ones are created for different types of invaders. Basophils help fight allergic reactions and asthma. Eosinophils, they attack parasites and help with allergic reactions. I have allergic reactions to things because I have so many eosinophils in my body. Lymphocytes come in two main types, B cells and T cells. B cells create antibodies. They attack invaders like bacterias. And then T cells attack our own cells that have been taken over by invaders and they do other things too. 
So when you have AIDS, your T cell count is low. They don't attack cells that the HIV virus has invaded. Neutrophils are the most common. They can chase and engulf and digest bacteria, sometimes called a macrophage. They're the ones that kind of eat stuff up. And they're the first ones on the scene when an invasion starts or a bacterial invasion. There are other ways to categorize these different blood cells, but it's easiest to think of them kind of as soldiers, right? They're sent all over the body. They help defend you. They sense danger. They talk to each other, and they go after the invader and hoping to destroy it. Another part of your blood, part number three, platelets. These tiny cells form clots, which help you stop bleeding, help you not lose more blood. When one of your blood vessels gets damaged, it sends out a signal, help, help, I need platelets. The platelets rush in and they start to kind of patch the hole. Once at the scene, they stick to the side of the blood vessel wall and then secrete chemicals saying, hey, we need more people over here, more platelets, I guess. And then they all come over to the party and they grow these kinds of little arms and stretch out these proteins to connect to each other and plug the hole so blood stops flowing out of you. All three of these start out as tiny stem cells called hematopoietic stem cells, and they'll eventually grow into one of the three groups, red, white, or platelets. Now, the fourth part, kind of important too, I personally think a little more boring, plasma. Plasma is the liquid part of your blood. So white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets, they're all cells, they're all chunks, right? Plasma is the liquid that those chunks are suspended into. It's a mixture of water, sugar, fat, protein, and salt. It's mostly water, about 92%. If white blood cells are soldiers and platelets are the surgeons and red blood cells are like, you know, the, I don't know, the guys, the, the Sherpas, plasma is like the dudes driving the truck, right? It's the dude driving the train around the body. The plasma's job is to carry the vital parts of the blood everywhere around so they get where they need to go. White blood cells get where the invaders are, platelets get to the cuts, and the red blood cells get to where the oxygen is needed. Plasma does have another job, though. It absorbs nutrients, electrolytes, and hormones, and will deliver those where needed as well. It collects waste, and it delivers that to parts of the body that can get rid of it, like the liver or the kidneys. And another thing that plasma does is it helps regulate body temperature. Blood plasma can absorb, and it can give off heat, and it can speed up or slow down how fast the blood is flowing. When blood vessels are expanded, more blood will flow, and that also releases more heat. If you contract your blood vessels, you limit blood flow, and then the heat loss decreases, which is why blood flow, you know, when it's hot, your hands get redder, and when it's cold, they get less red. You know, they, they, they're constricting your blood vessels. And that's pretty much it. Your blood is made up of red, white blood cells, plasma, and platelets. It travels all over your body, gets rid of what you don't need, fixes stuff when it's broken, and helps make sure that you have oxygen and nutrients to burn. It's super important, but it's extremely bad when things go wrong. So sometimes blood goes bad. It's not necessarily that something is wrong with it all the time, but there are blood disorders. Some you're born with, some you can acquire. The most common type of blood disorder is anemia. Probably heard of this before. According to the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, over 3 million Americans are affected by anemia, and the culprit for anemia is red blood cells, and actually a lack of red blood cells to be more specific. As we mentioned earlier, red blood cells carry hemoglobin, great word, throughout the body, and attached to that hemoglobin is oxygen. And when there aren't enough red blood cells, or if they aren't working properly, or if they don't pick up enough oxygen, they don't distribute that throughout the body, and that makes you feel tired. Actually, not just tired, you feel 
exhausted. You know, you, you, the most common symptom of anemia is exhaustion. Another common blood disorder has to do with the platelets, with clotting. When you cut your finger, you're essentially slicing a small artery, right? What is supposed to happen is the platelets rush in, they call for backup, they clog the wound, they're like, we got it, yay! Eventually, though, once the blood vessel heals, the clot dissolves and goes away. Sometimes there are disorders that affect that process, and this is super dangerous. It's called a deep vein thrombosis, or DVT. It can happen to anyone. A clot can just be floating around the circulatory system, and when that clot hits the wrong thing, you could end up with a big problem. So if, say, a clot breaks off, travels through the bloodstream, and hits the lungs and blocks something, that's called an embolism, a pulmonary embolism in that case. If the clot is small, then you can recover. Sometimes it just pushes through with the pressure of the blood itself, but sometimes it gets stuck. If the clot is large, it gets blocked, and then the other side of that vessel doesn't get any blood, and it can cause cell death. As many as 900,000 people in the U.S. are affected by DVT or deep vein thrombosis, and it can kill up to 100,000 people. Things can also get stuck in the brain. The clot doesn't just go to the lungs. Uh, Obviously, the lungs are a popular location for blood, but so is the brain. And if it gets stuck there, it can cause cell death as well. And that's really, really bad. That's a brain embolism, and it can cause stroke, which is when brain cells are damaged because of essentially lack of oxygen. There are a bunch of other blood conditions like hemorrhages, blood leaking out of the blood vessels. This can get really dangerous when it's internal. There's hemochromatosis, which is high traces of iron in the blood, which creates problems in the liver and the pancreas. There's sickle cell disease, where the red blood cells literally look like a sickle and they're sharp and it can cause pain and organ damage. It's genetic, but basically your red blood cells aren't the cute little donut shapes. It's bad. There's also things that can affect the blood externally, like malaria. We've all heard of malaria, right? Mosquitoes transfer parasites into you, but they're actually transferring the parasites into the blood and then the blood carried around, and most people with malaria have flu-like symptoms, high fever, muscle pain, but it can get more serious and it can get more deadly. There are obviously a ton more of these things, but the more you think about it, the more you're like, wow, blood is super important, but once something gets into the blood, it can go anywhere in your body right? So that's just another reason to protect and care for your blood. There are times when your blood gets affected by something that you can't really plan for, like cancer. Mostly when you think of cancer, you probably think of parts of the body, you know, brain cancer, skin cancer, lung cancer, throat cancer, whatever, fingernail cancer. I don't know if that's actually a real thing. Don't quote me on that. But blood can get cancer too. It freaking sucks. It's the worst. Leukemia is cancer of the blood cells. I did not know this. I knew leukemia was bad. I didn't know it was cancer of the blood cell. Basically, the bone marrow that creates blood cells starts creating abnormal white blood cells, and they grow faster than normal cells. The fast-growing white blood cells are not then able to fight infection the way they normally would. Eventually, the bone marrow won't produce red blood cells, they won't produce platelets, and it can cause, of course, problems throughout the rest of your body. There are several types of leukemia. It's broken down by how fast symptoms get worse and which blood cells are affected. Acute leukemia gets worse really fast. It's acute. Uh, People feel symptoms right away. Chronic leukemia is, you know, repeated. It gets worse over time. It can take years to feel symptoms. Then there are the types of blood cells affected. So lymphocytic or lymphoblastic affects the lymphocytes, the white blood cells, Myelogenous leukemia affects red blood cells, platelets, and so on. And there are four different types of leukemia based on those criteria. Lymphoma is another type of cancer. 
that is of the blood. It's actually a form of leukemia, but instead of affecting the blood-forming cells inside of the bone marrow, lymphomas affect the lymphatic system. The lymphatic system is crazy. Go look it up, or you can watch this video that I did about tonsils, which are part of the lymphatic system. Lymph nodes, which you've heard of, they're part of the lymphatic system. It's got its own circulatory structure of like lymph fluid. It's, it's kind of insane. We could do a whole thing on it if you want. Let us know. But basically, lymph nodes are like filters for your body. Lymphoma is when the lymph node cells or the lymphocytes multiply uncontrollably. And then there's Hodgkin's lymphoma and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin's is the more common type of lymphoma. It's actually the seventh most common cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States because blood is important. And when it gets cancer, it's bad. There are people looking to cure these diseases and there are treatments out that work with some of these. Some of them involve like taking an HIV virus, modifying it to attack the leukemia, and then putting it into a body. It's happened. It's crazy. There are all sorts of different really awesome and insane treatments. Essentially, what we're trying to get across here is the blood is everywhere. It goes everywhere in your body. It affects every cell everywhere. So when it does get sick, it's kind of crappy. People who treat, diagnose, and prevent cancers and diseases of the blood— This is called hematology. It's the study of the blood and also of bone marrow diseases. Someone who studies hematology would be called a hematologist. You've probably heard that word before. And they're trying to fix all of these different things. They can do some tests on your blood. When they draw blood from you, they use it to do a variety of different things. This is a few of the tests to help figure out blood-related disorders. One of the first that they would do is called a complete blood count, or CBC. It's basically a broad screening. It looks at how healthy a person's blood is. CBCs can be done in a routine health checkup, but they can also be done when they know something is wrong, we need to figure it out. This is where you would kind of start. It can even become a regular test to monitor the condition of someone who has a disorder, who they already know has a disorder. It can help diagnose blood disorders, cancers, anemias, leukemias, and it measures both your white blood cell count and your red blood cell count. And not only does the test measure the number of red and white blood cells, but it also measures the average size of those cells. Because if you remember, leukemia grows larger and larger white blood cells. This is called a mean corpuscular volume. It also measures the red cell distribution width, basically the variation of the size of your red blood cells. And then it can take in the average amount of hemoglobin in those cells. That's the mean corpuscular hemoglobin count. It does all sorts of stuff. But generally, they just call it the CBC. After the CBC, they do a blood smear. This is where they take a drop of your blood, they put it on a glass slide. Looks great on camera, so you see it all the time in crime shows and shows like Dexter. Love that. So good. And then there's a special stain that's added, and an automated digital system analyzes the results, which is not at all like you see on TV, but it's much more accurate than putting a little eyeball on a microscope. You can just give it to a computer and be like, count all of this stuff. If the CBC shows that the cells are abnormal, they're immature, there's too many, there's too few, then they can do a blood smear. Or if someone, you know, exhibits some of the symptoms of a blood disorder, they would do a blood smear. If there are findings between the CBC and the blood smear that show something might not be quite right, then they can run a whole battery of other tests because, you know, science. You gotta test and then find out and then test and then find out. The tests that you would run after the CBC and after the smear would be for things that 
you suspect could be missing or wrong or, or somehow part of the disorder. So you could test for the iron in your blood. You could test for folate or vitamin B12. Or There's hemoglobinopathy evaluations. There's bone marrow aspiration and biopsy and flow cytometry, which is how much blood is moving at any given time. There's immunophenotyping, which is immune cells and what types of immune cells you have. There's so much stuff. Unfortunately, some of these tests will then find something wrong if there is something wrong. We're not saying it's unfortunate that they found it. It's just unfortunate that something is wrong. Some blood disorders and cancers do have treatments. Anemia, again, the most common type of blood disorder, can be treated sometimes. It depends on what causes it. If the anemia stems from an iron deficiency or a nutritional anomaly, they might say, just change your diet, and then your anemia may abate. If a person's anemia stems from a chronic disorder or a disease that's affecting you, and this is a symptom of that, the doctor might try and fix that chronic disease, which might eventually fix the anemia. In some cases, the doctor could prescribe medication that would make bone marrow produce more red blood cells, and then you wouldn't have the anemia anymore. There are also tons of other cases and treatments. I mean, we could run them down, but that would be a whole episode. And I suggest if you're interested, look those up on your own. This kind of stuff, if you learn it at the right age, I can imagine just learning about this would make me want to like go be a doctor. You know, when I was young, I was like, ew, medicine, fluids, gross. But learning about it like this, kind of getting into the granular details of blood, it's super exciting, right? It's super interesting to think about it as this fluid that suspends all of these different life-giving molecules. As far as preventing anemia, by the way, if you think you might have anemia, talk to your physician, but eat well and eat foods with high levels of iron and B12, and that could potentially help. Not necessarily medical advice, just general advice. There's also, of course, blood clots, as we mentioned earlier, and to treat blood clots, it would depend on where that clot is. There are medicines that will prevent clots from forming called anticoagulants, you know, things that make sure your blood doesn't coagulate. There's medicine aimed at specifically causing blood clots to dissolve, which are called thrombolytics. There's catheter-directed thrombolysis, but before you freak out, it's not that kind of catheter. Catheter means different things. The catheter is surgically inserted into, say, a blood vessel and aimed at the blood clot that they need to remove, and they use clot-dissolving medication to get it out of there. It's a very directed therapy. And there's also a, another treatment option. You can literally just go in and cut out the clot that is a problem. This is called a thrombectomy. Things like leukemia can be treated, but first we have to figure out what kind of leukemia it is. So we'll perform a biopsy of your bone marrow. Not a comfortable procedure. Bone marrow is way in there, so you have to get to it and then take it out. The thing is, we can't really run down all the different types of leukemia treatments since you can have different types of leukemias and lymphomas and non and Hodgkin's and so on and so on. But essentially, it will depend on your age, your health, and the type of leukemia they find. Acute leukemia, they might give you chemotherapy because chemo targets rapidly dividing cells. So they will stop those cells from dividing and hopefully stop the leukemia. But there are other things like biological therapy, radiation therapy, stem cell transplantation to give you better or new bone marrow. Uh, there are all sorts of different treatment options. And again, of course, the one I mentioned the other day about modifying viruses to have them attack things like leukemia is super experimental and brand new. But that's like the future, right? It's kind of hacking into cells and telling them to attack your cancers for you. Then there are some treatments for blood disorders, like taking your blood and giving you new blood. It's called a blood transfusion. But to make sure that goes off without a hitch, 
there are a couple of considerations, right? If I took blood from you and I put it in me, it might not go that well. One, you could be dirty. I don't know. And two, what if we don't have the same blood type? There are different kinds of blood. Blood is not blood. All blood is not blood, right? There are different types. Hopefully you know your blood type because if something happens, that speeds up the process. Otherwise, they'll have to test and find out what you are. And in the meantime, they have some things that they can do. Human blood types are based on an ABO group system. This is all based on something inside of your blood called an antigen. There are two types of antigens, which is very important, foreign antigens and self-antigens. Foreign antigens are substances that come into the body and they trigger an immune response. And this is when your body sends out antibodies like white blood cells to find and attack those invaders, like a bacteria or something like that. Uh, and that happens because they have foreign antigens. Our body makes its own antigens, like little licenses on each one of your cells that's like, that's mine, this one's not mine, call in the troops. Each red blood cell contains millions of self-antigens. Our body knows about them, they know they're harmless, they don't do anything. The antigens is what give you your blood type. It's important to know your blood type because your immune system is gonna attack anything that doesn't have your antigens, right? However, there are some ways to fudge the numbers here. There are two different parts. There's the ABO group, and then there's the positive or negative, which is called the RH. The ABO group is the type of blood you have, and it's kind of the one that most people remember. Blood types can be you know, A positive, A negative, B positive, B negative, O positive, O negative, AB positive, AB negative so on and so forth. If you have type A blood, that means that you have A antigens in your blood and anti-B antibodies. Type B blood is the opposite. Come with me on this, I know it's a little weird. Type B antigens and anti-A antibodies. That means you can't put type A blood and B blood in the same person. If they are a, an A person, they can't take B blood because it has B antigens and anti-A antibodies, right? They will attack them. If you have type AB blood, however, AB, both, that means you have both of the antigens, A and B, and no antibodies. So if you have AB blood, you can receive blood from both A and B donors, but you can only donate blood to other people who have AB antigens, right? So then they won't be attacked. There's one super blood type, which I'm sure you've heard of, called type O. Type O has no A or B antigens, but still creates A and B antibodies. So it's kind of like an unlicensed blood type, to go back to that analogy I made up, right? The blood looks at it and like, I don't know where you're from, but you got them antibodies, so we'll let you stick around. It's crazy. The whole thing is crazy. For example, type O folks can donate blood to anybody, A, B, and AB, because they lack the antigens. So your ABO blood type, it will depend on what antigens you either have or you don't have because you have to make sure that your blood accepts that new blood and doesn't say, you're not licensed to be here, I'm gonna attack you. So what makes your blood positive or negative? What does that have to do with anything? That has to do with the RH factor. The RH blood group system has 45 different antigens, a different type of licensing system for your blood. But that plus or minus sign only really has to do with the D antigen. The D antigen is the most common in the RH blood group, and it's the one that causes the most severe immune reactions. So that's the one that we track. 
This is why we find it important to let people know you should probably know your blood type, but we just call the D antigen positive or negative. It makes it easier. People that are Rh positive can receive blood from people that are Rh negative, but people that are Rh negative cannot receive blood that is positive. Make sense? What happens is a body that is Rh negative, they'll see that D antigen and they'll be all like, whoa, 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 you definitely don't belong here. And then we get back to that attacking thing again. As you can probably guess, there are even more specific types of blood as well. These are just the broader groups, you know, O positive, O negative, A, B, so and so and so on. There's the Kell blood group, the Lewis antigen system, the MNS antigen system. But for the sake of time and the fact that it's already complicated enough, we're just going to stick to the familiar A, B, O, and RH systems. But go look them up. Kell, Lewis, MNS, super interesting. It's also important to know that your blood type is not something that you get to choose. It's something directly passed down from your parents through your genetics. So if you don't like your blood type, blame your parents. And if you really don't like it, okay, we can do something about it. There are certain instances where your blood type can change. For example, if you get a bone marrow transplant, which you know if you've been tuning in this week, that you get new red blood cells. You get the donor's blood type. So if you get new bone marrow, that bone marrow only knows how to make whatever blood type the donor was. A team at the University of British Columbia developed an enzyme that can also change your blood type by altering the antigens, and it can make type A and B become O, the universal blood. It essentially unlicenses your blood. So why did we develop all of these different types of blood? No one is sure. We have no idea. But what we do know is there's more to it than just naming. One study from the Journal of the National Cancer Institute found that people with type A blood have a 32% higher chance of getting pancreatic cancer than people with type O blood. With AB, it's 51% higher, and B is 72% higher. That's pretty crazy. Another study from Taiwan found type A blood had more risk for stomach cancer than type O. Kidney cancer was more connected with type AB blood. People with type O are protected from dying of severe malaria, but other studies suggest that people with type O might be more likely to be depressed, have high anxiety, or ADHD. There are even uh, other studies that explore blood types and how they affect different disorders and whatnot. You should find out your blood type, moral of the story, and ignore anybody who says that your diet can be influenced by your blood type. That's not even a thing. That's not real. There's no blood type diet. Just eat healthy. Anyway, blood type is kind of a mystery. Scientists don't know why we evolved these different licensing antigens, right? We know what came first, though, or at least we have hypotheses. One theory is that type A came first about three and a half million years ago, and it mutated over time to become type B and then type O. Today, the most common blood type is type O, and we just went over a small number of reasons that O can help you survive longer, which scientists connect type O. It's kind of an evolutionary advantage, right? It's the newest blood type. It's the best blood type, maybe, but this isn't really proven. When DNA was examined from Utsi the Iceman, longtime Test 2 Plus listeners know who that guy is. If you don't, search our channel and find him. He's the best. Data actually suggested that Utsi had type O blood, and he's the best. I don't have type O blood, but I wish I did, so I could be cool like Utsi. What type of blood do you have? Do you know? If you don't, go donate blood, and they will tell you. It's a nice free perk of donating blood. On top of that, though, donating blood is really important to help other people, and we need more of it. We want to have blood substitutes, right? We want synthetic blood. 
We don't want to have to suck blood out of all of these different people in order to save all of these other people. That would be ideal. When we say synthetic blood, we're not talking about like a recipe for blood on like a horror movie set, right? We're talking about literally scientifically developing blood that could potentially replace human blood when needed. And that would be great for so many different reasons. Obviously, when there's a crisis of some kind, a tsunami, a, an attack of some kind, a war, you do need blood. And there is a major worldwide blood shortage, historically, kind of all the time. Pretty much any war or natural disaster results in an increased need for blood transfusions, for blood for surgery and accidents, and people making sure that they just have enough to get through the surgery that they need to live. In January of 2016, the American Red Cross declared an urgent need for donations because of a shortage that they were experiencing because of winter weather. People weren't going to donate blood because it was a really harsh winter on the East Coast. There were 1,700 fewer blood drives, 50,000 fewer donations, and blood is needed every single day. The American Red Cross claims blood is needed every two seconds. 36,000 units of blood are needed every day in the U.S. 13.6 million units are collected each year. So if you do the math on that, 37,260 units of blood have to be donated every day in order for making that work, that math work out. I mean, that seems like a pretty stable balance of blood supply and demand, right? But you're not taking into account the different types of blood, and where that blood is being donated. If everyone donated blood equally, there would be a lot more blood in New York and L.A. and Chicago than there would be in Nebraska, right? And on top of that, you'd need to make sure the blood type matches. Of the 13.6 million units collected every year, Ben Bowman, CEO of General Blood, told Forbes 1.3 million pints are spoiled or are wasted. How does he mean wasted or spoiled? Well, Blood is difficult to transport, it doesn't last forever, and there's this whole blood economy that goes into that. You know, you might donate blood to a private organization, you think you're doing good, but, you, I mean, you are, but then they sell that blood, and they have to ship it somewhere so it can be used. I think it was on Radiolab. I looked it up earlier, Clear Eyes, Full Veins, Can't Lose, something like that. Definitely check out that one. It's really, really good. It's crazy complicated, though, the blood economy. Donated blood, though, Part of the reason it spoils is because it can only be stored for 42 days. So if you donate blood in South Carolina and a tsunami occurs in Washington, one, they'd have to find a way to get that blood to Washington to use it. But two, you'd have to hope that that tsunami happens within 42 days of your donation or your donation don't get used by that. Substitutes might help extend shelf life for up to three years. There's stabilizers, buffers, there's different means of refrigeration and temperatures, uh, ways to store the blood, you know, to kind of keep it moving and, and keep it alive. It's a living substance, right? Those cells are alive. But when you're transporting that blood, it becomes difficult when you get away from places with great infrastructure. If you're in a battlefield or if you're in the middle of nowhere, whatever part of the world you're in, it can be more and more difficult to transport this living substance. And as we've mentioned throughout this series, not all blood is the same. And we're not talking about this time blood types. What if blood is donated and it's infected? 15 million units of blood are transfused annually without being tested for HIV and hepatitis. This is more common outside of the United States, but there are other diseases which we should be worried about that can be transmitted through blood, like mad cow or Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, and it's pretty impractical to test all of the blood that gets donated for all of these things before it gets used. 
Of course, donated blood is also constricted to certain blood types and people who are healthy enough to do so. So there are people whose blood is needed, but they may not be able to donate. So wouldn't it be nice, after all of that, if we could just go make some blood, you know, something universal that we could donate to anybody? But sadly, we don't have that right now. There are well-accepted oxygen-carrying blood substitutes, which you would need if, say, you needed a red blood cell transfusion. However, there are no well-accepted oxygen-carrying blood substitutes, none, which you would need if you wanted more red blood cells. You could replace your plasma, some of it, with a non-blood volume expander. It helps fill up your veins, like a plasma replacement. It literally fills in the circulatory system. This avoids the risk of disease transmission and immune risk suppression. And it also addresses some concerns people have, Jehovah's Witnesses and other religious groups, of getting blood transfusions. But there are people working on getting oxygen-carrying blood substitutes, essentially synthetic red blood cells. The primary function of blood is to transport oxygen and remove CO2 from our cells throughout the body. Most synthetics being tested are classified into two categories, hemoglobin-based oxygen carriers and perfluorocarbon-based oxygen carriers, so HBOCs and PFCs. In HBOCs, they use hemoglobin. We talked about it earlier, it's a great word. The membrane of the red blood cell is removed in this process. And in doing so, it removes something called isomer 2,3-DPG. The hemoglobin can transport the oxygen throughout the body, but without the isomer 2,3-DPG, has a difficult time releasing the oxygen molecule. So it has it, and it's kind of like a, like a bloody tease, just drives by, doesn't let it go. Biomedical engineers are trying to develop artificial red blood cells that will encapsulate actual hemoglobins the red blood cell would be synthetic, but the hemoglobin wouldn't be, and the type wouldn't matter, and it would hopefully be able to release the oxygen because that's kind of a big part of it. Another way to create HBOCs is to use a chemical bond and literally just hook two hemoglobins together. Once you do that, it strengthens the hemoglobin, it lasts longer in the circulatory system, then it would only need a molecule that mimics that isomer and it can be linked in and boom. I mean, I mean I, kinda. More research is needed at least in the U.S. According to the FDA, HBOCs tend to build up toxic levels in the blood and they can cause high blood pressure, they can harm kidneys and hurt other organs. So HBOC is not the best. That's one method. The other method is the PFBOC or more simply PFC, the perfluorocarbon-based oxygen carrier. And these are liquid fluorinated hydrocarbon compounds. Let me break that down a little bit for you. Fluorine, hydrogen, carbon, will chain and carry dissolved oxygen, essentially, is what they're trying to do. Similarly, it's essentially simulating hemoglobin. They need to figure out, though, how to make these things, the PFCs, compatible with humans. They require emulsification because they don't easily mix with actual blood. An emulsion is a liquid suspended inside of another liquid. In 1989, Japan manufactured the first FDA-approved PFBOC or PFC, and they didn't really have a lot of success with it. It was complicated to use. It had some side effects. And that's really it. Those two groups are the only way that we've tried so far to make this synthetic blood work. We can't synthesize it yet. But there are less recognized alternatives for blood, like hyperbranched polymer-protected porphyrins, or plastic blood, pretty much. It's currently being developed at the University of Sheffield, and it uses plastic molecules with an iron atom core. Sounds familiar, right? Iron, hemoglobin, 
transports oxygen throughout the body. Sounds pretty natural. That might work. We still have to figure that one out in the future. Stem cells from umbilical cords and adult donors can be used to create red blood cell substitutes. They're cultured in solution. It takes about three weeks, and they can create about 10,000 red blood cells from a single stem cell, which sounds awesome, but since it takes a month and blood only lasts about 120 days, you have to really stay on your schedule. And it's only 10,000 red blood cells from a single stem cell, so you have to create a lot of red blood cells. The conversion on top of that is only about 50% successful. So again, we're, we've, got, we've got some problems. We, we need to work on these things. Hopefully we can find out more about this when synthetic blood comes out in 2017. That's their planned release date. There's also cloning blood, one of the first stories I ever talked about on discoverynews.com. Our website is about cloning blood. It requires stem cells that can be scaled up to industrial levels and they can use it in the military uh, and it can be made type O. So you just clone other people's blood and you come out with this great product, except it came out in 2008 using embryonic stem cells, which were much more controversial and some of the first stem cells we started using, people don't really like the idea of taking embryonic stem cells from humans and using them to grow blood. So not the best plan there either. The common conclusion we came to here is that a lot of research and testing is being done on creating blood substitutes, but we don't really have a synthetic blood substitute for use in America today. So the best plan that you can really have is to take care of your blood, right? As we've kind of said a couple of times, blood is what keeps you alive. It's your highway system. It's your waterway system. It's what transports all your nutrients, all your oxygen. It transports your cells that can heal you and can fight off infections. Blood is super important. And it is constantly replenishing and constantly being used by your body. And yet we never really think about it unless we cut ourselves, do we? You're not sitting around thinking about your blood. I mean, maybe you are right now, but most of the time, you don't think about it. On top of that, it gives our face color, gives our body color, like our lips are red because blood cells are closer to the skin. You can see the redness. They turn blue when we don't have oxygen in them because deoxygenated blood changes color. You know, our blood is such a big part of being human, and we should kind of love it. It's kind of fitting that Color of Love is also red. Thank you so much for tuning in to Seeker Plus today. Let us know over on Twitter what you thought of the show. Thanks so, so much for listening, everyone. You can come find us on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. You name it, we are there. Just look for Seeker. I'm in all those places too. Just look for Trace Dominguez. Let us know what you think of the show, what you thought of your blood before this episode, and if you feel any closer to it now that you know so much about it. I mean closer, like, not physically, because it's literally inside of you. You know what I mean? Like, you feel nice to it. I don't know what I'm looking for. If you were skeeved out before and now you're not, tweet at us about it. Again, find us by looking for Seeker. Thanks so much for rating, sharing the show with your friends, and tweeting at me, coming up to me on the street and talking to me about it. This is why we make this show, because we think that this stuff is awesome. So thank you for that. I'm Trace. Thanks again.